for that, and thank you for allowing us to come and be with you this weekend. We have enjoyed ourselves. I'm going back. I might have to pay extra for the extra baggage. Not, <laughs> not it checked, but carry on, like carried on here. Uh, so I think that's all we've done. It's been a very great Baptist meeting. All we've done is talk and eat. And uh, so, uh, you know, this is, uh, I guess, my kind of crowd, so to say. And uh, we have enjoyed ourselves. Thank you so much for everything you've done for us. Thank you for uh, yesterday, all the uh, uh, lunch together, and then the meet and greet. And I really enjoyed that. And uh, if you were not here for that and you want to interrogate us, we're available after service, all right? Uh, we're not offended. We're not hurt. Uh, that's what we're here for. We want you to get to know us, and we want to get to know you. And if you have questions or anything, feel free to ask those of us. And thank you for the beautiful place to stay and uh, the great fellowship. We've enjoyed being with you these few days. We continue to pray that the Lord will give wisdom both to you and to us. And that we'll all be on the same page. That's what we want. And we want God's will. And I know that you do as well. I want you to take your Bible this evening. Turn with me to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter number 8. And um, I want to preach maybe a, a little bit of an unusual message tonight. But uh, I, I actually had about seven or eight messages at the hotel that I was trying to flip through and find the mind of God. And I got it narrowed down to three. So I brought three with me. So if I preach this one, it doesn't work. I'll just turn over and get another one. All right. So it may be a long service. My wife is all excited. She says, we're going to get out early tonight. Well, you know, it won't be the first time she's been wrong. But, uh, but uh, you have to know us. If, if we're not picking on each other, there's something wrong, you know. And we have a great time. Uh, but uh, no, you probably will get out early tonight. But I believe this is what the Lord has for us this evening. First Kings chapter number 8. If you found your place, if you'll stand to your feet as we read our scripture text. First Kings chapter number 8. We're going to begin reading in verse number 1. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel, unto King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto King Solomon at the feast in the month uh, Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tabernacle of the congregation and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, even those did the priests and the Levites bring up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor numbered for multitude. And the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place into the oracle of the house to the most holy place even under the wings of the cherubims. For the cherubims spread forth their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubims covered the ark and the staves thereof above. And they drew out the staves that the end of the staves were seen out in the holy place before the oracle, and they were not seen without, and there they are unto this day. There was nothing in the ark save the two tables of stone which Moses put there at Horeb. The Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. 
Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening. We thank you for your blessings upon us. Thank you for the services earlier today, for all of the preaching, the teaching, the singing that was done, for uh, people that were helped. And Lord, uh, your name being honored and glorified. And we thank you for what we've experienced already this evening. Now as we open up your word, I pray that you give me clarity of thought and speech. And I pray that you'd help us to have attentive ears. Uh, help us to have re receptive hearts. And then, Lord, when we go out this week, may we take those things that we have learned and gleaned from the house of God and put them into practice in our daily life. Pray that you'd use us to be a testimony in this dark world and point men and women to Jesus Christ. May you be honored and glorified, and may your people be helped. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Our text for this hour comes from the record of the great occasion of the dedication of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Now, I have to be honest with you. For years and years and years, I did not think too much of Solomon's temple. I mean, I just, I, really, I was uh, disappointed in it. I was uh, upset with it. You say, why in the world would you be upset with Solomon's temple? Well, I've studied the tabernacle so much the tabernacle is the most complete, the most comprehensive Old Testament type of the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and his work that you will find on the pages of God's word. It is absolutely phenomenal. I even have a college class that I teach, take an entire semester, and we try to make it through the tabernacle. We don't always finish, but at least we cover part of it. That's how incredible that tabernacle is. It is absolutely perfect. Modeled after, I believe according to Hebrews, the true tabernacle which is in heaven. Well, how can you improve on perfection? So when Solomon comes along and builds the temple, I just, you know, I always thought that the, the temple was David's idea. God never said to David, build me a house. I want to have a house that people can worship in. That was all David's idea. And I just thought, David, why didn't you just leave well enough alone? I mean, the tabernacle, it was great. It had been there 487 years. Why didn't you just leave it for another 487 years? It's what God designed. It's what God planned. Now, I don't know about you. When you read the Bible, I don't know if you get in arguments with people who've been dead for a long time and stuff. And so I do. I mean, I, I just, I, I try to make it come alive. And so I, I was always upset with, with David. Because it was his idea, and then it seemed like God said, well, okay, if that's what you want to do. God, and, and you know how it is as, as parents. Sometimes you let your kids do what they want. It's not really what you would prefer. It's not what you think is the best. But you, you figure, well, there's not really anything too bad about it. So if that's what you want to do, just go ahead and do it. And that's the way I always looked at the temple. And then one day I was reading my Bible and I got a new revelation. By the way, it's amazing what you learn if you read the Bible. Amen. And I don't care how many times you've read through it. If you read it one more time, you're, you're apt to find something out that you missed the first two or three times through. And I, I was reading in 1 Chronicles, and I came to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. I'll read it to you. Verse number 11, then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern. And he talks about all the different things of this temple that Solomon is going to build. God said, David, you can't build it, but your son can build it. And so David now gives, he's coming to the end of his life, he gives to Solomon the pattern. Now, verse number 12 is what caught my attention. And the pattern of all that he had by the Spirit. And I thought, well, did that come? And then I looked, and it's a little s, a small s. That means 
all that David had by his own spirit. I thought, well, yeah, I was right. David's just, David's just making this stuff up. And then I kept reading, and I came to verse number 19 of that same chapter. All this, said David, the Lord made me to understand in writing by his hand upon me even all the works of this pattern. So all of a sudden, I had to recognize that I was wrong. It wasn't just David's idea that God's, well, okay, if you want to do it, just go ahead and do it. You know, I, I'm, I'm really happy with the time. It seems that God was very pleased because God gave to David some specific instructions about the building of this great temple. And so I begin to think about that, and I, I, I begin to ponder that, try to readjust my mind. And I got to thinking about this. I thought, well, if the tabernacle was so great, why did we need a temple? And then it finally dawned on me. I think the tabernacle represents for us or pictures for us. Remember I said it's the most complete picture of the person and work of Christ that we have in the Old Testament. I think the tabernacle focuses on Christ's first advent. and The temple sets before us his second advent. You do know that Jesus came. That was his first advent at Bethlehem. Died on a cross. Ascended to heaven after resurrection. But you do know that he's coming again, right? When he comes again, he's going to set up his kingdom. And so I think these two different structures present to us the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. Now, just think it. Just, just stay with me for a second. This is all introduction because I'm trying to get somewhere, all right? Uh, I told you my wife might be wrong tonight. Uh, think about it. Now, these structures are perfect. They, they set before us that because of their order. I mean, the tabernacle is first, right? And then afterwards, the temple. Well, I'm, I hope you're following me. The first advent is first, and the second advent is afterwards. It's second, right? So the order is right. The nature. That first tabernacle was a temporary structure. It was basically a tent with a courtyard around it. Everything was mobile. Everything was portable. It was not designed to stay in any one specific location. It was only a temporary thing. They would erect it. They would worship. God said to move. They would pack everything up. They would move to another place. They would put it back up. Uh, they did that over and over. So it was a temporary structure. The temple was built on a foundation. It's not mobile. It's not moved. By the way, when he came the first time, he's only here a very short term. Just about 33 and a half years. But when he comes back, he's coming back to set up a permanent kingdom. He's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. So the nature is right. The builder is right. You know who, who was the human builder of that tabernacle? The, the overseer of that project, the tabernacle? It was Moses. Who was the builder of that temple, that permanent structure? It was Solomon. Now, you know who Moses was, don't you? Moses was a prophet, Deuteronomy 18, 18. But Solomon was a king. At his first advent, he came as a prophet. Remember that woman at the well? When he told her, he said, uh, you've had five husbands. The man you have now is not your husband. She said, I perceive that thou art a prophet. First advent, he came as a prophet. But the next advent, when he comes again, he's coming as king. Amen. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. By the way, the location is even right. That, that tabernacle, by and large, its location was in the wilderness. 
When they left Egypt, they get to the Exodus and they're given the instructions. And, and from that point on, that tabernacle uh, spends a lot of its time just wandering through the wilderness. And by the way, uh, that, that temple, it is erected in the capital city, the city of Jerusalem. You see, that wilderness would remind us of his humiliation. Uh, 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 he came the first time as a root out of dry ground. He came and he was just, uh, there was no beauty that we should desire him. He was just wrapped in a robe of flesh. But when he comes again, he's going to come in splendor and great glory and be worshipped by all the world. Even the appearance, I mentioned that in his first advent. He was very plain and unattractive. In that tabernacle, there's nothing beautiful about it from the outside. But all that temple, they say when you rose up and you ascended the hill up to Jerusalem, as the sun would begin to shine off of all of the gold that was on that temple, it would nearly blind your eyes. When Christ comes again, he's going to be, all of his glory is going to be revealed. It's not only right in all those things, it's right in its stamp. You know, if you read about that tabernacle, you'll find that it's marked by a specific number. It's marked by the number five. By the way, in the Bible, five is the number of grace. And when he came the first time, his first advent was marked by grace. But that, te that, that temple is marked by the number 10. The number 10 has to do with ordinal perfection. When he comes again, he's going to set up a perfect kingdom ruling from a throne in Jerusalem, ruled over by a perfect king. So I think we could say that the first advent is pictured by the tabernacle. The second advent is pictured by the temple. Now our text deals with the dedication of this temple. In chapter number 6 of 1 Kings, the work has begun. That David has died. He's laid things in order. He's taken offerings. He's given. So all the materials are there. And in chapter 6, they undertake the work to begin to build this great temple. It took them seven years to complete the building of this temple. It's interesting to study. You realize that it was a prefabricated work? They cut everything. They measured everything. They hewed everything off-site. They brought it on site and they fit it together. There was not the, the sound of a hammer or saw heard on the building site when the temple was erected. It was all prefabricated. Now that's phenomenal, is it not? And, uh, and so it took them seven years to build. Now it was completed in the eighth month of that year, but it was not dedicated until 11 months later in the seventh month of the following year. And there are some scholars who believe that perhaps they postponed the dedication of this temple that we're going to read about, we read about in our text. They postponed the dedication of it because that following year was the year of Jubilee. It was a special year. It was a significant year. And so once the construction was completed, Solomon said, well, let's just wait. Let's wait till next year. It's the year of Jubilee. It's a year of celebration. It's a special year. It's a unique year. And next year we will dedicate the temple and then begin to use it in our worship. Now at the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles, Feast of the Tabernacles uh, uh, went for seven days and everybody would come up to Jerusalem. It was one of those times when all the, the, the males in Jerusalem were to come up to Jerusalem and worship. And so Solomon extended that seven-day Feast of the Tabernacles to 14 days in length. And it was there at this special time that they assembled and they dedicated the temple. Now everybody is gathered together. The temple is completed Everything is in place. 
And now they're going to have the grand finale. You know how it is with any major event. There's always like the grand finale. And here's the grand finale. Because in that temple, everything was brand new. They did not take anything from the tabernacle and carry it over. They made different candlesticks. They made different bowls. They made different vessels. They made a different altar. Uh, they, uh, they had the old laver in that old tabernacle. Instead, in the new one, they made a sea, and then they made ten new lavers. I mean, it was much more grand and magnificent, and everything was new. There was only one item in this entire project that was carried over from the tabernacle to the temple. Here's what it was. It was the Ark of the Covenant. We read about it in our read. They brought up the Ark and they brought it in to that place. Now, that Ark, we read about that Ark back in Exodus chapter 35 or Exodus 25. Turn back to Exodus 25, if you will. Now, I hope I'm not boring you. I always tell students, I say, if Bible study is boring, you're doing it wrong. Because it is exciting. It's an exciting book. There's so much to be seen. Now we go back to Exodus chapter number 25 and we read about that ark. We begin reading in verse number 10 of Exodus 25. And they shall make an, uh, they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof. A cubit and a half the breadth thereof. A cubit and a half the height thereof. Thou shalt overlay it with pure gold within and without. Shall thou overlay it. Shall make upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it. Put them into the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in the one side of it. Two rings in the other side. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood and overlay them with gold. Thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be born with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. Now we read about that ark. And I'm interested because they're moving the ark. We hear in Exodus 25, we find out that they, the ark is made of shittim wood. Now, Shittim wood, if you look in the uh, Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, they translated it as being incorruptible wood. Uh, because Shittim wood, from all we can gather and all we can understand, it, it was a very tightly grained wood. The grain was so tight, it was very difficult to work with. It was so hard. It could not be uh, destroyed by insects because the grain was so tight and the wood was so hard. It, rot could not set in because there was just no way for the moisture to get in. In fact, the shittim wood was such a hard wood and such a difficult wood to work with, most often it was merely used for firewood. Because it's just too difficult to work with. It, it was just wood that they would take and they would burn. But many of these items that are in the uh, uh, tabernacle, God told them to make them of shittim wood. Why? Because they are going to reflect Christ who had no corruption in him, who did no sin, who knew no sin. In him was no sin. And so it had to be the most uh, uncorruptible wood that could be found. Now I want you to notice something. They took this ark made of shittim wood and they overlaid it with gold. Notice verse 11, thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. They overlaid it. Now, that is a picture of Jesus Christ. The wood, his humanity. The pure gold, his deity. We have the, the what we call the hypostatic union, the deity and the humanity of Christ in one. That ark was not just gold, but it was not just wood. It was wood and gold. 
You could not separate the two. They were, they were wedded together in a unique fashion. And can I just say Christ was human and yet Christ is divine. You cannot separate his humanity from his deity. He's always been God and he's human. He's wrapped in human flesh. And today in heaven we have a man who appears on our behalf at the right hand of God the Father. And it is Christ, the man, the Son of God as our representative in heaven. Amen. Now the ark was not of great size. I mean, if you take what the general understanding is that a cubit is 18 inches, then the ark is only three feet, nine inches long, two feet, three inches wide, and two feet, three inches high. It's not very big. But I want you to notice in verse number 15, here's what I'm interested in. He said, uh, verse number 14, and thou shalt put the staves, verse 13, thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, overlay them with gold. Thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark. The ark may be born. Remember everything about the tabernacle is portable. So they make this square box called the ark. It's not a square, it's a rectangle. They make this rectangular box called the ark. They put four rings, two on each side in the corners. And then they make staves of shittim wood and they run these poles through those rings and that's how they carry the ark. Remember David got in trouble because he tried to put it on a cart and move it up like the Philistines did. And when it began to shake, one man reached out to touch it and God smote him because they were not supposed to touch the ark. That's what those staves were for was to carry that ark. Well, it was portable and anytime it had to be moved, they had to, put, they had to take those staves and they had to carry them, uh, use them to carry the ark. Now I want you to notice verse number 15. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark. Notice this next phrase. They shall not be taken from it. God wanted them to know that at any moment, any time, his presence was ready to move with them. No matter when the cloud said it's time to move or the pillar of fire said it's time to move, those staves were to be in that ark so it was ready at any moment to be picked up and carried with them. That was the presence of God. But now notice back in our text, I don't know if you got this or not, verse number 8, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse number 8, and they drew out the staves, that the end of the staves were seen out in the holy place before the oracle, they were not seen without, and there they are until this day. For the first time in nearly 500 years, we read of a record of the staves being removed from the ark. I don't know. Maybe it means nothing. But then again, maybe everything in the Bible means something. Here's what I've discovered. Nothing's in there by accident. Nothing's in there by happenstance. Nothing just accidentally slipped in. Every word was inspired by God and God gave us exactly what he wanted us to have and he gave it to us for a reason. So what can we learn about these staves being removed from the ark? I, I want to preach. That was all my introduction. But my sermon is real short. You know, I'm like a 747. It takes me a lot of runway to get off the ground. But it's a short flight and we'll land soon, okay? I want to, I want to preach to you for a few minutes on this thought. The testimony of two staves. The testimony of two staves. And when I look at these staves, to me, they carry a testimony. And it's my testimony, and I hope it's your testimony tonight. You say, what is it? Well, first of all, in these staves, I see a testimony of my conversion. We go back to Exodus chapter number 25 where we read about this ark. 
And I notice in verse number 13, he said, Thou shalt make staves of shittim wood. Now think about it. Here's, here's just some little saplings growing in the woods. There's nothing special about them. There's nothing wonderful about them. They're just out there growing. In fact, there's, there's literally a whole forest of these saplings just growing. You drive down the road, you look, and what, over in the field, there's all these, whatever they are, mesquite trees or something another. You know, they're about this big around, about this tall, and there's like 10,000 of them in that one field. I mean, can you just imagine all these little saplings just growing their shittim wood? And by the way, that, that shittim wood is very difficult to work with. It's not easy to make anything out of. It's really not big enough to make anything out of. In fact, guess what it's generally destined for? It's destined for the fire. Oh, is that not us? Not very much. Whole world filled with kind of the same thing, a little bit different, maybe a few different knots, a little different shade of bark, but we're all basically the same. And uh, apart from divine intervention, we're all what? Ultimately destined for the fire, a place called hell. But these staves one day, they were chosen. Remember when God chose you? Now, I can't explain it. I'm not a Calvinist, and I believe in free will, but God also chooses us. You say explain the sovereignty of God. Well, you tell me how a black cow can, can eat green grass, give white milk, and make yellow butter. I can't explain everything. I don't know how it all works. But you know what? I'm going to put butter on my biscuit and I'm going to enjoy it. Just because I can't explain it doesn't mean I'm not going to believe it. Doesn't mean I'm not going to accept it. I'm going to take it by faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. I don't understand how it is. But I just know that one day that, uh, that man that was working on the tabernacle, he's strolling along and he goes into this forest of saplings and he, he chooses to. Remember when you were chosen? But by the way, he chose them not because of what they were, but because of what he knew he could make of them. Oh, can I say I'm nothing? But I'm glad that one day he looked at me and he saw something that nobody else in the world saw. And he said, I want to choose him because I know that I can make a vessel that's meat for the master's use. But before these staves, these saplings could be much good, guess what they had to do? They had to be cut down. They literally had to die. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And, and so those saplings yielded to the hand of the builder. They allowed themselves to be cut down. And then they were crafted. He took them to his shop and he began to work on them. He began to... Uh, Scrape off the bark. He began to shave off the knots. He began to trim off the branches. He began to smooth them out and to work them over and to work and to work and to work. And by the way, that's exactly what he's done with us, is it not? I mean, I'm not what I'm going to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. I may still have a few knots that he's working on, but he's working on them. And sometimes it's painful as the knife is applied and the bark is stripped off. And, and I think it might have been better back then, but I realized that I'm in the hands of a master craftsman, the carpenter of Galilee, and he's working on me to make me something that he wants me to be. Then when he's all finished, guess what he does? He covers them. 
He covers them in gold. Notice what he said. Verse 13 of Exodus 25. And thou shalt make two staves of shittim wood and overlay them with gold. Now the ark itself, when you read it, you can read it. It was overlaid with pure gold. Not a flaw, not, not an imperfection, not an impurity at all. But the staves were merely overlaid with gold. Could I just say, we're not deity. But aren't you glad that he's making us like him? That's his goal is to make us conform to the image of Christ. And these two staves are a testimony of my conversion. How that I was chosen, how that I was cut down, how that I've been crafted, and how God has covered me with the robe of his righteousness. And when people see me now, they don't see what I was. But they see what I've become because of the one to whom I yielded myself. And can I say that's true of every one of us? Not only do I see a testimony of my conversion, I want you to notice very quickly, I see a testimony of my commission. Now I want you to look in Exodus chapter 25 and verse number 14. And thou shalt put the staves, all right, now we're going to find out what the staves are made for. Thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be born with them. These staves had a purpose. They were not used as walking sticks. They were not used to prop open the tent door. They were not used to level out the table if it was unlevel on the ground. These staves had one purpose and one purpose alone, and that was to bear the ark. They were to carry the ark everywhere they went. Their job was simply to carry the ark. They were never to be removed from the hand, those rings that were on the sides of that ark at all times, on all occasions. Anytime the staves moved, they moved with one purpose, and that was to carry the ark. Now I want you to notice what was in that ark. We go to verse number 9 of 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. I know I'm making you turn back and forth in your Bible, but it's good practice for you. <laughs> verse number 9, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse number 9. There was nothing in the ark save the two tables of stone which Moses put there at Horeb. Now, if we go back to the Old Testament, we can go to Hebrews, and the writer of Hebrews tells us about what else was in the ark. Uh, we know that uh, at one time, uh, when the manna was given, God told him to take a pot of manna and put it in the ark, a golden pot of manna. We know on another occasion when Aaron's rod budded, that Aaron's rod was to be put in that ark. But somewhere between all of I don't know when it happened. We don't have a record of it happening. Maybe the Philistines, when they captured the ark, maybe they took that Aaron's rod that budded. Maybe they took the golden pot of manna. We don't know when it happened. We just know by the time they come to the temple there's only two there's only one thing in the ark and that is the table of law the table of testimony that God gave Israel on the mountain when he gave it to Moses and Moses comes down and God tells him put a copy of that in the ark so the only thing in the ark is the tables of testimony the ten commandments as we would say it now what are those ten commandments what are these what are these staves going to carry to all the world well, first of all, those Ten Commandments are a message of condemnation. Do you realize if you read those Ten Commandments and you study out the Old Testament, uh, those Ten Commandments, they are a burden placed upon men. Ten times you'll read the phrase, thou shalt. Thou shalt. Thou shalt. Here's the problem. Nobody could. Nobody ever perfectly kept them. 
Paul did real good until he got down to number 10, which said, thou shalt not covet. And he said, then when I, when I read and saw that thou shalt not covet, I realized that I was guilty. James says, if a man sin and offend in one point, he's guilty of all. And every one of us are guilty. And uh, what do we carry to the world? We carry a message of condemnation. You can't measure up to God's standard. You're not right. Uh, the soul that sinneth it shall die. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But you know what that message of condemnation was covered over by? The mercy seat was actually the lid of that ark. The condemnation, the message of condemnation is accompanied by a message of compassion that you can't do it, but somebody in mercy did for you what you could not do. Sometime you ought to go back and you ought to read Exodus chapter 20 and then you ought to read Jeremiah chapter, I think it's Jeremiah chapter 31 where he talks about the new covenant that he will make. Here's the difference. In the old covenant, Exodus chapter 20, you'll find 10 times the phrase thou shalt. There was something you had to do. There was a responsibility. But in the new covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31, you won't read the phrase thou shalt at all. Here's what you read. Five times you read, I will. Here's what happened. God said, I gave you these commandments. I gave you this responsibility. You could not fulfill it. No man has ever been able to fill it. So here's what I'll do. I'll remove that responsibility and I'll do it for you. I'll do everything for you. Five being the number of grace. God in grace and mercy said, I'll take your place. I'll fulfill your responsibility. And that's exactly what Christ did on the cross of Calvary. He took our place and fulfilled our responsibility and made a way of salvation. You realize that these staves carried this message everywhere they went. A message of condemnation, a message of compassion. They carried it everywhere they went. Think about all those. You know the staves were never praised? You, you can't find me a verse in the Bible that talks about the staves. Because it wasn't about the staves, it was about the ark. By the way, it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. And we don't have to look for praise on this earth. And we don't have to look to be lifted up by men. We don't have to look to be lauded by men. Because it's not about us. Our job is just to carry the message everywhere we go. Now think about in carrying the message, think about all that these staves got to see. They got to, they, they, they got to see the wilderness journeys. Those staves got to see the Jordan River part and the children of Israel cross over into the promised land on dry ground. Those staves got to make a visit to the house of Dagon. Remember when the Philistines captured the ark and they took it and they put it in the house of their God? Those staves were there. Those staves were present. They saw when Dagon fell down before the ark. Not only that, Philistines came in that day and said, oh man, must have been an earthquake or something. Let's set him back up. The next day he fell down and his hands are chopped off. And those staves got to see everything that happened when they carried him into the temple. If you read on this later, later on in this chapter, you'll find that the glory fills the house. And those staves got to see the very glory of God. Could I just say, if you and I will surrender our life to serving God, make it our mission to carry Him everywhere we go, there is no telling what God will allow us to see. Man, I have seen things. If I tried to explain them, I couldn't explain them. I've seen miracles. I've seen unusual things happen.
It's not because I'm something special. You know what? But I'm on a mission. I'm just carrying the ark. And everywhere the ark goes, there's God. And God, when God shows up, miracles happen. Amen. It's a testimony of our commission. We have a job to carry the ark. It's a testimony of our conversion. God has chosen us and made us into something to use for his service and for his glory. But in these staves in 1 Kings chapter 8, I see a testimony of my coronation. Now for 487 years, these staves have faithfully carried the ark. They've carried it over mountains. They've carried it through valleys. They've carried it across rivers. They've carried it into battle. And now the day has come when they're going to carry the ark for the very last time. Placed upon the shoulders of those priests, it's carried up to this brand new temple. It's carried in to the Holy of Holies. And for the first time, 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse number 8, and they drew out the staves, that the ends of the staves were seen out in the holy place before the oracle. For the very first time, the staves are removed. Why? Their mission is completed. They've done their job. They've been faithful year after year, decade after decade, century after century. They've carried it through the heat. They've carried it through the cold. They carried it up the mountain. They carried it across the valley. They have been faithful in doing their job that they were designed to do. And now their job has come to a completion. And it's time to rest. I don't know. Maybe Solomon says something like this. Sit here beside the ark and bask in the worship that men will bring to God. You finish what you've been made for. Well done. Oh, could I just say, maybe Solomon felt that because they had been so faithful, that these staves should have a special place in the house of the Lord. There's no law that demanded it. There, there, there was no requirement given in Scripture. But Solomon felt they'd been so faithful that they deserved to be able to sit there and see as the world would come to worship him who is altogether lovely. Could I just say it's not over yet? We're still carrying the ark. I don't know how many more mountains. I don't know how many more valleys. I don't know how much hotter it's going to get or how much colder it's going to get. But I do know that one day soon, the day is coming when we're going to make our last journey. For the last time, we're going to pick up the ark and we're going to carry it. And I want to be faithful so that when that day comes and I arrive at the ultimate destination, I can hear him say, well done. Well done. I knew it would be a difficult job. I knew that there would be mountains, there would be valleys. But you did it well. You did it faithfully. You did it year after year after year after year. Now you've arrived. You're at home. wonder if those staves paid attention and saw people that perhaps they had been instrumental in making sure the ark was a presence in their life watched as they came and worshipped. 
I think one of the glories of heaven will be able to look and see lives that God used you to touch. Why? Because you're just faithful carrying the ark. You're not anything special. You just don't stave. Just worked over, covered up with gold. One purpose, one reason to carry the ark so that others might see. Could I just say we're not home yet, children? Keep your eyes on the Savior. Just a few more days to labor and we'll sit down beside the river. How I long to be with Jesus and the friends gone on before us. We're not home yet. There's a better day coming. We're not home yet. Can I say this week when you go out, be a, stave, a faithful stave. As you go to work, carry the ark. As you go about your community, carry the ark. As you go to school, young people, carry the ark. Because if you're faithful in carrying the ark, one day resting time will come and you'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, our heads bowed and eyes closed, I wonder tonight, how many of us would be here? You say, Brother Bertram, I know for sure I'm on my way to heaven. No doubt in my mind. But Brother Bertram, I have to be honest tonight. Maybe I've grown a little weary in just being a stave. But tonight the Word of God's reminded me of what God has done in my life, where He brought me from, and His purpose that He has for me. Brother Bertram, would you pray for me this week that I'll be a faithful stave? that I'll carry the message, I'll carry the ark, I'll carry Christ to a lost and dying world so that men might see him and so that should my time come to go, I'll be able to stand before him and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. If that's your heart's desire and you'd say pray for me, just slip your hand up, put it right back down. Thank you, I see those hands. I wonder tonight, would there be someone here, maybe more than one, you'd say, Brother Bertram, I'm not sure that's me. I don't even know for sure that I'm on my way to heaven, but I'm concerned about where I'd spend eternity. You say, in your closing prayer, would you just remember me? I'm not going to point you out. I'm not going to call your name. I'm not going to come and try to drag you to an altar. I'd just like to pray for you if you're concerned about where you'd spend eternity. Would there be someone here tonight? You'd say, Brother Bertram, with every head bowed, every eye closed, Brother Bertram, would you pray for me? I'm just not 100% sure that I'm on my way to heaven. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed, eyes closed. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful testimony of these staves. How they set before us a beautiful picture of what you've done for us and what you ask us to do and what awaits in days to come if we're faithful. I pray for every one of these who lifted their hand and said, pray for me. Lord, I pray that you'd help them to be faithful this week. I pray that you'd help me to be faithful this week as I go about my affairs, as I do my work, as I travel to and fro, as I go to businesses. I pray that you'd help me to be faithful carrying the ark, the good news of salvation, the testimony of Jesus Christ. So that should you call me home, I can stand before you and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Pray that might be true in every one of our lives. Pray that you'd use us for your honor and glory. Bless the invitation. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.